Hello and welcome to the Duelist Unity Movie Review Series, Episode 4. I am glad I woke up this morning and appreciating just being alive here now and enjoying all the things that I'm able to do with being alive because I'm not quite sure what the alternative would be these days. I used to be a real prick. I just wanted to say that out in the open to begin this episode, that if you were to meet me 20 years ago, you would be meeting a person who was completely lost in the illusion of control, completely lost in the need for validation, completely lost in a sense of isolation, regardless of how hard I was trying to fit into the world around me. And it really was its own hell. But as though by some miracle, I had a moment of clarity that made me recognize how beautiful my life was and what my, what my priorities really were underneath all that need and confusion and loss. And it changed my life. And those moments are always there. They're always available. Sometimes when you don't recognize that they are so, especially when you don't recognize them, when, especially when you don't recognize that they are so. And so if you're still struggling, if you're still working through the darkness, I just want you to know that the light's right around the corner. You may not see it coming, but it's always available to you. It's just a matter of waiting for a moment of clarity and having the willingness to surrender what you think is right right now, because it's, it's how you got to where you are. So that all said, this movie review episode is about the movie Scrooged, which came out in 1988 and stars Bill Murray, uh, Karen Allen, Carol Kane, Bobcat Goldthwait, and Alfre Woodard. It's a fantastic movie. Of course, it's a spin on the traditional Christmas Carol story of Scrooge himself, but it takes place in the late 80s. So in the time of uh, television and movies and commercialization and a world of capitalism, it's really well done. I really liked this movie and I was excited to introduce it to Andrew who has never seen it before. So I'm glad that it is now added to his Christmas repertoire. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were, Andrew. Yeah, so I, I had seen uh, Christmas Carol and I'm very familiar with that story in the past and it does follow that, but it was cool to see it, you know, in, in modern day. And so I don't, I don't really know where to start this one because they're like you kind of have the classic situation where it's a guy who in this case bill murray being frank in the movie is a tv exec and basically just a fucking asshole to everyone like he's scrooge and so everything that goes along with that character pretty familiar character i think in in most people's understanding just a grumpy dude who doesn't really do many nice things for anyone and it's just very much focused on himself and yeah that's that's pretty much what it came down to but i'm I'm curious from your take like because i wasn't quite sure where the shift was for him like going back to christmas past and whatnot his relationship with claire and then there's a scene with uh where he's the dog and again if <laughs> we haven't made this clear if you're watching this series Go watch the movie before because there's tons of spoilers that are going to be in this episode. Um, so there's the scene where he's the dog and and uh, his boss invites him to dinner. And then 
Claire's like, oh, you know, we can't do that. And he's all excited because his boss invited him to dinner uh, and feels kind of special. And then Claire's like, oh, no, we have dinner with our friends. It's Christmas Eve. You know, they're our best friends. And Frank's like, this is not the time to be selfish. Like, what about my needs? What about our needs for, for this? And he gets so he basically I felt like that was very symbolic of him putting his job above the rest of his life and and Claire specifically. And so I feel like it was a, a very subtle sort of shift that led him down a certain path. But I'm curious from your point of view where you saw that shift or, or why he got he began to become so hard and and grumpy. It's really interesting because you're talking about these subtle shifts that happen throughout this movie. And what I enjoy is they show you right from the very early moments of his life as he was watching television as a way of kind of tuning out the person that his father was and the reality of, of not celebrating Christmas or, or having any joy in their household whatsoever. And so he was glued to the television and that's where he got his obsession with television. But it also became where he learned to tune out the rest of the world as a way of protecting himself, right? And so after that, you see him get a little older and he gets his first job and he's already super disconnected. Everybody around him is having a Christmas party and he's still doing work. He doesn't, he's not able to get into it. He's not able to relate to anybody. He doesn't recognize the opportunities for fun at all. So he's already on that path and he's very much focused on it as, as a measure of his success, as a measure of his worth and happiness. And so he's completely single-minded until, oddly enough, he meets Claire. And Claire makes him feel something that he didn't feel at home. He didn't feel with his parents. He feels free, like he can be himself. He's really just enjoying his time with Claire without having to think about any future or any goal. With Claire, he feels like himself. And so when we get to the moment where he makes the decision between himself in terms of control and status and value and success versus that feeling of freedom where he just could be himself. And that's the choice he makes is to continue down this path where he's constantly got to be in control. He's constantly got to be the best. And that's where we meet him at the beginning of the movie, right? When the executives are showing him what they have for the promo for the Scrooge special that's being done. And he's like, you know, I am the youngest television executive that has ever been. I know what's best for everybody, right? Like he really comes from this place. Like he's just better. I love the point where he opens up the drawer and he looks at a mirror and he sees himself and he smiles and it's the fakest, fakest smile. And it's just to show you that that's his relationship with himself. It's a mask, right? But he is not a happy person by any means. So yeah, I thought that was really, really interesting. The ghost of Christmas past always kind of makes me laugh. And there's one line right after the dog uh, scene specifically where Frank is like, I know, who, I know who I am. I know what I want and I know what's going on. And then the next line is what's going on. <laughs> and that's exactly the point, right? Like we convince ourselves that we do things because we know where they're going to go. And yet when we look back and you can see the moment on Frank's face as soon as he recognizes that he's on the set for that that dog show his face drops he knows exactly what choice he's looking at because he's thought about it before 
right? And it's changed him. And then after he comes back from that vision of the ghost of Christmas past, that's when he goes and, and he's looking for Claire, right? And that's a really interesting scene too, when he goes out to Operation Reachout and he's walking in as he's ranting about what's going on under the, underneath the surface. I don't know if you caught any of that as he's ranting about his needs and his wants. And, you know, and the fact that, you know, if I want a wife, I'll buy a wife. And in basically he's going off about how this control thing should be working. And it's not to the point where he's still chasing her down here to get her back in his life. Right. But then do you notice that's not enough, like because she didn't want to leave then, didn't want to do what he had in mind, didn't have the same ideal that he did. That wasn't it because he wasn't willing to change. He just wanted her in his life again. So he hadn't actually went back to being free. He was still looking at her as another result, looking at her as another means of control. Yeah, that scene was very interesting where he was walking in and because he was talking to himself, they just kind of assumed he was he was crazy and they put a blanket around him and he sat there and just just kind of fit in. And he was so caught up in his the things he was thinking about in his mind that he wasn't even aware that he was like getting sat down in basically a, a soup kitchen for looking like he was crazy and, you know, given a coffee and everyone's crowding around him, talking to him, like trying to get him to say lines from Shakespeare or something like that. And it's funny because we just me and Ray were talking about stuff yesterday and I was kind of expressing relationship stuff and talking about people who you know would would be a good fit and past girlfriends and whatnot. And and Ray said, yeah, I think, you know, you you'd want someone who's going to question you and and not just kind of do whatever you want them to do. And so when that scene happened where Frank walks in and and basically kind of gets Claire back and then she or seems like he's going to and then she's like, "Well, I have to I have to do this and, you know, I have to check in on the turkey and the gas piping or whatever." And immediately he's like, "No, just just come with me. Just do what I say. Just do what I want." And it's like it was the total opposite of what me and Ray were talking about yesterday with like what you would actually want in a partner when you're letting go more and more of the idea of control is you don't want someone who just caters to your every wish and every need because it's like that that would get very uncomfortable if that was the case and it's funny because i saw that and the parallel was like that's all that he wanted because he was so lost in the idea that control is a real thing and so you know the perfect woman to him is someone who does just cater to his every need and every every wish. And so because he was so lost in the idea of control and, and all of that, that was as soon as he didn't have it, as soon as she was making her own decisions, he was like, no, I don't I don't need you. And then he finishes off bah humbug. And then and then he leaves. And so I just found that whole scene very interesting. And it was just a, a great show of the mentality that he was in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting because see, the whole thing with Frank is selfishness. He's focused on himself. And because of that, he's in a prison. And he sees Claire, who is basically selfless. And he wants that freedom that he feels with Claire because she's not trying to get things out of him so he can just be himself. So in that scene, he's asking her to join him in selfishness 
let's you and I go to a tropical beach and we'll eat Chinese food and we'll do all the things we want to do. As for everybody else, scrape them off. And that line says everything about how he views people. He views people as, as a weight that are getting in his way towards eventually achieving success or, or worth or happiness, right? And that's the reason he's always so stressed, right? It's the reason he doesn't give a shit about anybody. It's the reason he's terrified, about, uh, terrified of his boss, right? Because he is. And it's the funniest relationship to watch. Like you can see he's not being authentically himself with his boss. All of a sudden he meets uh, Bryce Cummings and he's totally worried about his job. He knows he's going to get replaced by this younger version of the person he's trying so hard to be. So there's so much that, that goes on there, but I have to ask because admittedly, my favorite character in this movie is Carol Kane as the ghost of Christmas present. She busts me up every time I watch this movie. So I want to ask, what did you think of the ball breaker suite? I thought I, that character was awesome. Like I, I watched uh, the end. We tried so as a family, we tried to watch it, um, and everyone just kept falling asleep. So my mom and I just like everyone was doing stuff, and we watched it together. And she absolutely loved that character, as did I. Like we were laughing pretty damn hard because it, it, it was like she didn't give a shit about anything about Frank, like any of his status or or whatever. She was like just kind of beating him around, like didn't, didn't even care and, and kind of showing him the reality, just opening his eyes to the reality of what was happening as opposed to, it's not even that he had a distorted view of things like he did, but it, it was almost like he didn't have a view of things. Like he didn't have a view at all. It wasn't that he was seeing, you know, anyone in any certain way. It's like, he wasn't even considering them. Like he had such a strong veil that it was almost just a complete wall. Like he didn't see anyone. He didn't even need anyone. Like he had no regard for the impact that his personal decisions would make. Like early on in the movie, when he fired the guy who was trying to give him advice and like immediately after he left, they had the conversation. He was like, told his assistant, like, yeah, go fire that guy basically give him a few minutes and he wasn't even considering the impact that that may have on his job and his ability to get to the place that he wants to get to like he's so enthralled in this idea of, of selfishness and just immediate personal decision making based on how he's feeling that he wouldn't even consider beyond that to any degree and just like, oh, that guy, he's he's questioning my ability or, or my character or whatever. Fire him. Doesn't even matter. It's not even a consideration. But yeah, going back to Ghost of Christmas Present, I thought she was fucking hilarious just the whole time, that entire character, because it was what no one in Frank's life was really ever willing to do to him because he was able to put himself in a certain position of power and also just didn't give a shit at all about what anyone thought or what anyone was doing or, or any had any consideration for anything. So it, it was almost like he needed something to come around and smack him around a little bit to just like allow him to be aware, like smacking someone in the face, that's going to bring you to the present pretty damn quick. 
And so I think that was a good, good symbolism for bringing his focus back to where he's at instead of just veiled by his selfishness and his idea of himself and where he's going. Because it's blinding him. That's the thing that they make obvious throughout the whole movie. Like even at the beginning of the movie, before any of the ghosts, before his boss visits him and uh, he gets the humanitarian of the year award. And he's like, oh, it, sometimes it hurts giving so much. And then he takes a cab back to his office and he leaves the award in the cab. Like he cares that little about it and doesn't even see that he's doing so. He sees the guards, he kind of sneers at them openly, right? He's not aware of anybody else's feelings because he's so focused on himself as a whole. And so when you get to the ghost of Christmas present, yeah, she, she's making him aware of the reality and it is painful. And that's what being in the present is like. All of a sudden, all of the past comes up and you're just like, oh, this is what I'm making right now. And if you're judging yourself for it, you won't learn from it right? But you need to see it. You need to have eyes wide open. And that's why it's interesting that he sees uh, Herman, the homeless guy that he could have helped survive by giving him a couple of bucks to heat his place. Um, he sees Calvin, uh, Grace's son. I love the fact that his assistant's name is Grace, by the way. I thought that was really symbolic because that's what he needs is a little bit more grace, right? But to show how blind he is, he didn't even recognize that Grace wore black for a year because her husband had died violently. And that's what had left her son without the ability to speak completely cut off almost in the same way that Frank was, but for a way better reason. So there's some empathy there that Frank has for Calvin, which I find really interesting. Right. But, and then of course the relationship with his brother, which he's more or less not cultivating at all because he's so focused on himself to the point where he doesn't even want to send his brother a nice gift because his brother doesn't have enough value that comes through him to Frank. Yeah. In terms of for all the relationships, be it his assistant, Grace, his brother, Claire, and even it's like, he's not even capable of having a relationship because he's so blind to everything else. Like he doesn't see the utility because in a relationship it's like there is a give and take to a degree it can't you can't just be focused on yourself in order to have a relationship you need to be open to a degree and because he just isn't at all they show it very well that there is there are no relationships that he has like the just the number of scenes that he had in his office by himself pouring himself a glass of vodka like i think that was just a great show of how alone he was like, didn't have anyone to go home to didn't have anyone to speak to really. Like he has a couple phone calls in there with different people, but they're still very much self-serving. Like whenever he interacts with anyone, it's strictly self-serving. Like it's never a give, it's always a take. And if there is an almost like a situation in, in which it is a give and take, like it just ends, like it ends very, very quickly. But yeah, his his relationship or lack of relationship with his brother is just another <laughs> good show of that. And, and all of the gifts that he gives as well, it's like he's always giving the bare minimum, like he has all the money that anyone could ever have. And it's like, because of course he does that because he doesn't see any utility there. There is no benefit to himself in terms of 
you know, gaining more control, getting more money or really whatever his, his end goal is, I guess, just going as high up as he can and in his company, really. But it's so interesting how just like all of the things that most people strive for, he's because he's strictly embodying selfishness. It's like he's not even able to see the benefit in that. Like he's blind to his own suffering too, almost. Yeah, absolutely. And it's because he spends so much time making other people suffer because of his suffering. That was the thing about the character at the beginning of the movie that he fired. He actually took joy in firing that character. It wasn't just that he had questioned him. He's like, five minutes. In five minutes, I'll give you my opinion. And then he made sure that character was fired and off the premises within five minutes. And to the point where, and I thought this was really interesting. I caught this, I think the third time I watched it, where he looks at Grace and he says, who is that person? Fire him. Grace gets on the phone to security and actually has a code number for firing somebody within five minutes because he's done this before. So yeah, Frank is completely cut off so much into the um, investment and return mentality, because that's often how the ego works. We, we don't invest in anything unless we're getting a return out of it. When he's talking to his brother about Christmas, he's like, oh, I love Christmas. All of these idiots are going to be home watching TV tonight, which benefits him. Right. And they, they show it so beautifully how selfish he is. And I still think this moment's hilarious for how selfish it is when the old lady is trying to get into the cab and he says, excuse me, miss, you dropped something. And so she turns around to pick it up and he gets in her cab and gives her the finger. That's exactly what kind of person Frank Cross is. Something else I caught actually this time around was actually the name Frank Cross. To be cross is actually to be upset. And to be frank is to be honest. So our character is named honestly upset. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, the uh, just all of that. Uh, uh, there's just so many situations of him just embodying pure selfishness, and also where that goes for him. Like he's never happy. He's never satisfied ever. Like the entire movie until. The end until he lets go of that until he recognizes what's actually happening. And so I was curious about this part because it seems so going into ghost of Christmas future, seeing, you know, the repercussions of everything and, and where it all ends up. One of the main parts and, and kind of the shifting scene is when he go, sees his funeral and it's just his brother and his uh what was that sister-in-law his brother's wife and at first he thinks it's his brother in in the coffin because it's just uh his brother's wife and then his brother shows up and he's like who's who is that in there who is that in there and then so it's it's him it's at his funeral and it's just the two of them and then he gets starts getting pushed into the into the flames and that's when he starts freaking out and he's in the coffin and you know flames going up and that's then goes through that and then kind of wakes up back in his office and that's that's like the shift so was it just the accumulate do you think it was just the accumulation of seeing all of the shit throughout you know past present future and then gets to the point that like that's when it ends like he sees the end and where that train goes and then 
wakes up. I was kind of curious about the shift because it seemed like all of a sudden, boom, he's he's out of that extreme selfishness and you know starts hugging the guy who is going to kill him who he fired early on in the movie with the shotgun. And then, you know, the whole ending of the movie is like very emotional and he's a completely changed and new person. So what do you think the symbolism was there of going through the incinerator? We see that's the thing, right? Even with the Christmas Carol, it's really the stages that the character goes through that, that are important. Like, it's not just that he's seeing his past and his present and his future. It's that each and every time he's being dropped to his knees by that ghost, each and every time he's being put into a state where he doesn't feel like he's in control, he doesn't know what's going on, and he has to tap into humility. Right. And so by the time the ghost of Christmas present finishes beating him in the face with a toaster, he's almost at, at his wit's end. Like he's done in terms of not having a sense of control anymore. Like he freaks out at the fake ghost of Christmas future in the elevator. Right. He's like, oh, my God. Like and he, he's just he's had it. There's nothing left of the semblance of control that gave Frank his ability to, to continue on through life. And that's why you see him in his office drinking and trying not to shake as he's pouring himself a drink. And then the consequences of his life show up in Elliot Loudermilk and a shotgun. So a real world consequence to who he's been. All of a sudden he sees all how all of his past has led to this moment where he might actually die. And then the ghost of Christmas future comes along. So he's already broken. He's broken as a person. And in that, that state, he's trying to maintain some dignity because he knows this is, this is going to break him for sure. And so he sees Calvin, who's still not talking and has withdrawn to the point where he's no longer even in society anymore. He's been locked up and he resonates with that. Like you can see it really hits him because that's something he could easily prevent. Given all of his contacts and all of his wealth, he could easily help with that. And it hits him. And then what I think is interesting is when he does get to that scene with his brother and his brother's wife, and he's like, oh, it's not James, it's not, I don't know who, who's in the box. He knows very well who's in the box. It's so very interesting. Even Celeste is like, well, wouldn't he put it together? I'm like, he wouldn't want to put it together. That's the point. And then when he finally gets there, because there's this denial, like, no, 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 I can change everything I've seen. I can change everything I've seen. And then when the box starts going into the flames and he's trying to pull it back, you can hear he actually says, why are you showing me all this stuff if I can't do anything about it? And then he's in the box showing that there's an end. And you really can't do anything about it at this point. And that's when he wakes up. That's when he comes back into the world of living. He's like, oh my God, I can still do something about this. I'm alive. I can change it all. That's why that, that moment is so powerful is because it's, it's, a, it's a buildup from the beginning of the movie onward, right? And you see it as he starts coming apart here and there, like in the restaurant, for example, when he just freaks out because the ghosts are messing with him. They are deliberately making him have a breakdown because that's the only way you can get through. As long as you have the semblance of control, you can convince yourself that you're still in control and you can keep running back to it to the point of your own detriment. Yeah, so I guess throughout, they're basically chipping away at his idea of control, which was kind of the crux of his ability to act in the way that he did was because he was able to maintain 
that idea of control. And so I think, and this is probably something, you know, after you watch it a few times, you start to get a feel for like the, the progress of it. I was still very much just like what's happening here. And so you see, I guess, a little bit more of the symbolism, the more times you see it and, and are able to catch that sort of chipping away of it. So it's not just that final scene. It's like, he's recognized that, oh my gosh, maybe I don't have the control that I thought. And, and so it's like, it's almost like at first he starts to, it starts chipping away and he's like, no, I, I still have it. I still have it. And then it chips away even more. And he, he starts to like kind of bug out. And then he's like, starts questioning that. And then it gets to a point where it's like a process. And then finally it's like, oh my God, I can't do anything. And it's like, so I guess going back to where I asked about going into the incinerator, it's almost like that's when he realizes that he has no control. And that's where it's like, it's all gone. It's not coming back. And then, and then he wakes up and he's like, oh my God. So I, I, it's like, he's born again without so much desire for control and selfishness. Or even the belief that it works. See, that's the thing is he's seen where the path of selfishness and control will end up. He sees the ripples that it has. And so all of a sudden it's not even an option anymore. And that's where he finds freedom in recognizing it's it's how you live here and now. And that's why when he gets off the, ele- the elevator, he doesn't even care about the shotgun, right? He cares about Elliot. He wants to make Elliot feel the same way that he feels. And that's what leads him to the ending scene, right? Is how he feels in that moment. He doesn't have a plan, he just knows how he feels and he wants to express it. And that's exactly the point, right? That's exactly what all of this journey is about. Is, is recognizing that the more you control things, the more you're distorting it, the more you're not being yourself because you're trying to be something and it creates a prison for you. One of my favorite scenes that shows that example actually is when he first sees Claire. So after the first ghost visits him, after Lee Hayward, his boss visits him and he calls Claire and he freaks out and she comes down to see him at the studio and he's all feeling good again. He's talking to her and there's this hammering in the background. And it's not making him happy at all. And so he keeps saying, like, would you quit the hammering? And he could just be enjoying the conversation, but he keeps getting more and more upset by it. And finally, he's like, quit the goddamn hammering. And the whole set comes down because they were trying to put it together. And it's a perfect example of exactly what control does. Right? He didn't understand everything that was going on. He didn't even ask. He just wanted to be in control because that's how he felt that he should be. And that's exactly how the movie carries on after that. But the reason I I love the last scene so much is because everything that the movie was about, which was the creation of this huge, huge live event on television. There was so much planning. There was so much uh, in terms of expenditure and in terms of manpower. Like it's a huge event that they're planning throughout the whole movie. And because he feels free, He says, fuck it. And he ruins the goddamn event. And he puts himself in the end of the story about Scrooge and wraps it up in a way that's more relevant to anybody who's watching. Yeah, that last scene is is very powerful. And I saw it even him going into the situation. He said, like, not having a plan anymore for a situation that was very, very planned. It's like you almost got to feel that he was free, but he 
there was no idea of what he was going to say or what he was going to do. He just kind of got on there and started like, there's a kid next to him at the top hat and starts like clumsily tapping the top hat and the top hat's like falling down on the kid. And so even, even then he's trying, he's expressing all of this and it's like, kind of looks like he's, I don't know, making fun of the kid or something, but it's just total lack of desire for anything to happen correctly and he just he just starts speaking from himself like he taps into a sort of flow state and just starts saying what he's recognized from all this buildup and the letting go of that you know need for control and that selfishness that he's been experiencing the entire movie he lets go of that and he's just able to you know tap into this beautiful monologue to to finish off the movie and everything sort of comes together perfectly the boy who didn't speak the entire movie finally speaks in perfect timing he just shows up right next to him it's like everything happens more perfectly than he could have ever imagined and even even his boss who's watching on tv you know with his wife like at first he's like what the fuck is going on this is crazy this is awful like what's he doing and by the end they're like got their arms around each other and they're smiling and really enjoying the whole thing and whether or not they were thinking about, you know, the impacts of it and how this could actually turn out better than, than the show, who knows, but they, they had kind of let go too. And because Frank was clearly free in himself, he allowed everyone else to feel free in themselves too. Yeah. And that was what came across. It wasn't scripted. It was authentic and it was raw. And what I thought was really interesting about the point where Calvin speaks is that during the vision that Frank is having about the future, he says to the ghost of Christmas future that, you know, I know the, uh, the top doctor at the local hospital, we're going to have Calvin looked at, we've got this, like, we're going to make sure this gets addressed. Calvin didn't need a doctor. He needed someone who was free. He needed someone who he saw break free. And that's what Calvin needed. So the moment was perfect. That's why it was, it was, it was so touching. The other point was what Frank was actually communicating in that moment. He wasn't talking about God. He wasn't talking about belief. He wasn't even talking about Santa or Jesus or anything else. He was talking about the miracle of selflessness. That in giving, you are being more free. And it's that easy. And he finally saw it because he stopped focusing on himself. And he saw it for what it was, a miracle. He's like, I get it now. I get it and I'm hungry for it, right? And that's what we feel when we suddenly break free. When we, when we suddenly recognize what it is to just be ourselves and there's this deep, intense relief and then tears and then kind of a little bit of frustration and a whole bunch of other stuff. But it's that moment that we break free that we're like, this is all I want to give to people. It's all I want to share. And he says, you know, some people are having problems finding their miracle. You can help them just by not focusing on yourself. So it's, it's a fantastic movie. It really is very well done. And it's one of my favorite Christmas movies. And so as many times as I've watched it, I still pick up new things as I watch it. And I'm very excited for you, Andrew, because now I know it's going to be in your Christmas arsenal. And the next time that you watch it, you're going to get a lot more out of it. There's a lot in that. movie. It's, it's really, really well done. And so I just wanted to say to our listener, if you haven't had a chance to go watch it, definitely go and watch it. I'm sure being around Christmas, you're going to find it on 
numerous different streaming platforms. And if you can't, you might even find a copy online somewhere for free, but it's worth the watch. I definitely recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think just a fantastic story of someone being seemingly so lost in the illusion of control and their idea of themselves and actually being able to recognize a way out and, and free themselves. Cause as much as he was shown, you know, by all the ghosts, by everyone in his life, the opportunity for it, like he had to see it for himself and he had to make the change for himself and he had to make the decision for himself. And that's what he did. And then, yeah, at the end there, just with basically yelling into the, into the TV camera, like, you can do this. It doesn't just have to be a Christmas Eve or a Christmas thing. You can do this every single day. It was uh it was really cool and and is something that I think everyone can take away some some lessons from. So yeah, it's a awesome movie and I appreciate you recommending it, Ray. Yeah, absolutely. There's this one line in the movie. Actually, I caught it this time and I've never caught it before when he gets off the elevator and the ex-employee still wants to shoot him and he's su he's super happy to see him and Elliot Laudermilk says I'm confused I was looking for a Francis Xavier Cross and Bill Murray says that's me but the best thing is that's not me and that's very much where his whole story changes so Thank you for joining us for this Dualistic Unity movie review. We will see you next week for our next review. If you have any suggestions for future movies that we can cover, definitely let us know on Discord or join us on Patreon. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone.